Welcome to Beyond This Point. I'm Gabriel Stromberg, Creative Director of Civilization. So, what is the point of Beyond This Point? The inspiration for this podcast really came about through our studio, being so inspired by those around us who we work, collaborate, and engage with. Artists, business owners, designers, and leaders of all types. We recognize the value in having access to these distinct perspectives and wanted to create a conversation that puts a spotlight on different ways of seeing, thinking, and making. My guests this episode are Marika Stolk, Erwin Brinkers, and Danny Van Dan Dunnen, the designers that make up Amsterdam graphic design studio Experimental Jet Set. After nearly two decades of working together as a power trio, Experimental Jet Set has established themselves as one of the most influential and important design firms in the world. They occupy a unique space within the realm of contemporary graphic design. On the one hand, they are known for their restraint, adhering to a pared-down design philosophy that often utilizes a monochromatic color palette and limited stable of typefaces. They are also known for a dynamic visual vernacular that is anything but restrained creating posters, identities, installations, and publications that are vibrant, bold, and eye-catching. Music also has had a huge impact on their work. From Tropicalia to New Wave post-punk, they are constantly using their favorite bands as a reference point for design in concept, structure, and visual execution. While Experimental Jet Set was in Seattle recently for our design lecture series, we decided to take Beyond This Point on the road we partnered with the Portland-based lecture series Design Speaks, piled into a van, and took a little road trip down to Portland, stopping along the way in Olympia, Washington, to go shopping at Rainy Day Records. In front of a packed house of designers at creative staffing agency 52 Limited's beautiful historic space, we sat down for a conversation centered around their new book, Statement and Counterstatement. We discussed how their design practice uniquely operates like something they call total football, how they designed their iconic John and Paul and Ringo and George t-shirt, and who exactly it is they designed for. And now, let's go beyond this point. I want to start talking about, about this book, this beautiful uh, monograph, Statement and Counterstatement. This was released last year. Was it last uh, beginning of last year? Yes, September. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it came um, out last September, that's true. Uh, one of the sections of this book is a, a collection of fragments from interviews and um, uh, online and in print. And it was compiled, compiled by uh, John Sueda. And what I think is really interesting, and I think this is uh, definitely kind of a, a component of uh, the experimental jet set way of working, is that um, no one is quoted individually. It's just kind of everyone is, um, every response is just experimental jet set. We never know if it's, if it's Danny or Marika or Erwin. And I was thinking that um, this podcast may have a similar effect <laughs> once it's recorded, and um, you can't see who they're, who they're, who they're, who's speaking. So I think, I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's funny. true. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you should have... Uh, I'm Marika, by the way. <laughs> oh, I, was, I was thinking if maybe, Marika, you could um, lower your voice, and then Erwin and Dan, you can, you might really get that not, effect. I don't need so to lower my we voice. We should equalize our voices <laughs> to come up with a sort of collective voice. Exactly. Actually, Danny yeah. has a quite a high voice. I, I'm the highest, yeah. I guess I'm <laughs> the highest voice. Uh, so I actually bought this book in Portland at the amazing Monograph Bookworks on Alberta uh, last or this past spring. And I remember when I walked into Monograph and I, I spotted the book from across the room, 
There, there's something about it that makes you just want to grab it and pick it up and, and hold it. Because it's light. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, and, and, and everything from the, uh, the paper stock to the format, it's uh, the size of a, of a paperback novel. It's very unexpected, especially from a design firm who's known for big environmental graphics, large posters. It's, it's a little smaller than I thought it would be. Um, which I'm sure that was intentional, just like everything about the book. I mean, could you, could you talk a little bit about what inspired the design? Um, actually, uh, I think uh, an, an uh, important um, reason why we uh, were interested in this format of the, the paperback, the sort of standard paperback, uh, was an, an essay that we... Um, Red, I think it's from 2003 or something. Uh, it's something that Mark Owens wrote, who also is a contributor to this book. Uh, and it was about the paperback covers of this uh, American designer called Fred Troller. And I think it was pu uh, published in Dot Dot Dot, that particular essay. And in that essay, Mark is writing about um, this whole landscape in America of 70s paperbacks, 60s, 70s paperbacks, and he described it really as this kind of paper landscape pushing all these quite subversive and political ideas into the mainstream of America in the form of these sort of innocent paperbacks that were sort of widely available. So this sort of idea of the sort of mass market paperback as a format that, that always sort of appealed to us. And we tried to use that uh, format a couple of times in earlier book projects when people came to us and we said, yeah, let's turn it into a paperback. And they said, no, we want a book that is, some, you know, that is somewhat bigger. And um, So now we finally had a chance for our own book to turn it into the paperback that we always wanted to, to make. Uh, <clears throat> actually, I would like to add that uh, all of our uh, work or our interest lies in the idea of uh, formats, like investigating formats. So uh, the paperback was one of them, and we did not had a chance to look at that. So that was also through 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 our assignments, we tried to investigate uh, those things we were interested in. It's quite of an odd format for us in a, in the sense that uh, we're often quite interested in these sort of A formats, you know, like those ISO. What is it? ISO. ISO, International Standards... Uh, Which number is it? Organization number 216. 216, okay, you know, A4, A5, and the fact that... Yeah, it's, you know, it describes the standard uh, uh, paper sizes. Uh, um, which are not so often used in the States, I think, but uh, you've probably heard of it, right? Of an A4. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and the paperback is such a sort of odd format compared to those formats. So it's almost like a... It's very American format, in a way, I think. It's also nice to push all our A4-sized format, or A, A yeah, ESO formats into this uh, non-format, basically. Let's see how that fits. It's good to sort of... <laughs> and the, uh, the title, Statement and Counterstatement, where did that come from? Um, it's a, it's an, a, a sort of phrase that he used a couple of times earlier. It actually comes from a quote by uh, Walter Benjamin. We came across it, that quote a, uh, a couple of years ago, and we thought it perfectly described uh, this idea of um, walking around in the city and being confronted with all these posters and 
street names and slogans and because uh, Benjamin uh, used this quote in the arcades project uh, describing sort of 19th century Paris um, uh, we always envisioned that it would, that it would be um, I don't know it's, it's quite a, a nice quote about the role that graphic design plays in the city or at least that is always a story that we tell about that particular quote He's actually describing the role of Hashi's on reading. So it's actually a complete stoner quote, but we, when we presented it, we always said it's more to do with the relationship between... I can read it if you want. It's quite, an, uh, it's quite a significant quote for us. We use it also in some other works that we made. Also, this poster series that we made for the Walker a couple of years back for uh, this group exhibition called uh, Graphic Design Now in Production. So this is Walter Benjamin from the Arcade Project. Under these conditions, even a sentence, to say nothing of the single word, puts on a face, and this face resembles that of the sentence standing next to it. In this way, every truth points manifestly to its opposite. Truth becomes something, uh, something living. It lives so, uh, solely in the rhythm by which statement and counterstatement displace each other in order to think each other. So on the one hand, it's, an, it's a nice metaphor for the, for the city and the way graphic design sort of responds to each other in the city. On the other hand, uh, the idea of all those sentences getting actual faces, it's almost like a psychedelic trip when you think of it. So it, it's a... It also um, is a sort of disclaimer immediately by calling it statement and counterstatement. People already know that everything that we say in the book will be probably uh, contradicted somewhere else in the book. So it's also sort of this, uh, yeah, suggesting a little bit the trajectory of the book that we um, sometimes arrive uh, at positions that are completely the opposite. At, of some of the positions where we started. And also the sequence of the essays of the writers, in a way, you know, because they all may have something else to say. So in that sense, it's also a bit like a sort of statement and counterstatement uh, thing. And I know I, I read um, online that the cover and also the, um, the corresponding zine, it, it was designed in a very specific way. Could you talk about that? Um. Yes, well, while making the book, we tried to postpone uh, designing the cover for as long as we could because we knew that uh, the cover is the first thing that people see of the book and it's uh, often the thing that people judge the book by. Uh, <laughs> so, so I've heard. <laughs> uh, so we didn't want to take full responsibility of the design of the cover, so we tried to come up with a way to... Um, um, I don't know, to let faith uh, <laughs> decide on, on uh, how the cover would look chance. like. That's or chance. Chance is a better faith word than faith, of course. <laughs> um, uh, and with, with that in mind, we came across um, this piece of software that is used in industrial um, uh, environments where uh, efficiency of material is uh, uh, important and this piece of software takes shapes and arranges them uh, on a surface as efficiently as possible. So it, it either either wood or steel or fabric. 
And we used that software to play around with uh, letters. So we fed it letters as shapes and um, uh, the compositions that came out of that uh, determined uh, uh, the, the compositions that are in the scene, which is titled Automatically Arranged Alphabets. And uh, from that scene, we took one, one of the compositions and we used it as a cover. So basically, uh, in the end, it was, it was designed for us by this uh, piece of software. One of my um, favorite sections of the book is an article written by Mark Owens entitled The Power of Three. And it's a survey of power trios, starting with, uh, let's see, wings, going through talking heads and unwound. And I actually want to read the closing paragraph because I think it's, it's so beautifully written. It's kind of the conclusion of the article, and it's basically all about the power of, of threes, the power of trios. Our list of power trios could be multiplied to include a host of other groups from the past few decades. The Melvins, the Fugees, Yola Tango, Beat Happening, Blonde Redhead, Low, Pizzicato Five, the XX, McCartney's recent success with Rihanna and Kanye West, pick your favorite. But in thinking of the band as a mode of design praxis, it is tempting as a kind of thought experiment to imagine one final group that could somehow combine all the various aspects of the power trios we have been tracing. What would that band look like? Like wings, they would stick together amid adversity, finding freedom and constraint and managing to create widely celebrated work that is raw but professional. Like the early talking heads, they would be art school trained and their self-presentation would be rigorously conceptual and language-based while still containing deep reserves of feeling. Like DNA, they would demonstrate the power of refusal, rejecting stylistic trends in favor of a disciplined materialistic approach that isn't afraid to alienate. Like young marble giants, their work would be controlled, personal, and vulnerable, even as it would be flexible and expansive, speaking volumes. And like Unwound, they would occupy the positionality of the post, whether it be post-punk or post-modern, not as late arrivals, but as leaders of the pack. To imagine this band, not simply as musicians, but as designers, is thus to understand the power trio as not only a mode of design praxis, but also as a spur to action. It is to imagine, if you will, a triangle that is also that most recognizable of graphic devices, an arrow pointing forward. That's amazing. And it's, I mean, it's obviously he's, he's referencing the work that you're doing and then including you in there and, and talking about that. So I, I want to talk about the band format. Um, music is obviously a huge inspiration for you. Uh, your talk last night was, um, was all about music. Um, this article is uh, all about trios, musical trios. So the, the format of, of, of the rock band, uh, it's represented for eternity, an opportunity for people, many times young people, to come together, to connect, to collaborate, to um, be creative. Do you see the rock band format as something that can be applied to a design practice? And if so, does it have its limitations? Where does that, where does that, where does that possibility end? Yeah, I, th I think that um, the format of a rock band is something we have been thinking about a lot uh, already since the beginning of our practice. 
I think we have, we have quite a maybe idealized, maybe even a little bit naive vision of the rock band as this kind of almost perfect uh, socio-economical uh, unit, uh, which is sort of small enough for the individual members to uh, put their mark on, but at the same time it's sort of large enough to uh, make an impact. Also, a little bit, I mean, we are also quite always inspired by uh, a lot of theories that revolve around alienation, alienation of labor. And, and I, I think that with, with a small group, um, the work that you produce is less alienated from yourself, uh, but at the same time, it's a collective effort. So it sort of combines the best of this kind of more individual mode of working and, and a, a sort of collective way of working. So we always imagined the rock band almost as a sort of perfect unit, which is probably a really naive uh, thought because in reality, of course, there's around the rock band this whole layer of management types, music labels and that kind of stuff. But as a sort of ideal model, the rock band was always quite inspiring for us, which is totally the opposite of the idea in a way because we talked about this rock model, uh, yeah, the rock band model for quite some time, and some people sort of confuse it then with the idea of, I don't know, the designer as the, as the rock star or something. But it's almost like the, the opposite. Uh, in a way, it is also, you know, a way to create an entity. Uh, this rock band also uh, is meant to be some kind of entity to sort of um, leave your uh, ego out of it, in a sense, and, and to sort of... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of like... Sort of like... I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what you have to say. <laughs> of course. Well, what I would like to add is um, we met Mark Owens, who wrote this piece, uh, actually like a week ago in Los Angeles, where we also did the same lecture as we did yesterday. Of course, we, we met him before, but we happened to... Meet him meet, again. Meet, <laughs> uh, meet up with him for the, for the purpose of the presentation, because he was sort of moderating the questions afterwards. And one of the questions he wanted to ask us was, uh, so what instrument do you play in the band? But um, I think we never got to answer that question. I'm definitely curious. <laughs> Who, who's on tambourine? I just want to know. Cowbell. Cowbell, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was actually quite glad that Mark never got no, around to asking this question, and now you bring it up. Yeah, exactly. Because this is exactly where the whole model doesn't work for us, because the rock band does sort of formulate quite precise roles, you know, two persons, you are the bass player, the frontman, the guitarist, or the drummer, which all these people always have their own temperament almost. It's almost like, you know, the drummer is really like the typical drummer, and the frontman is more like a narcissistic figure, and and uh, uh, and that is something, in that sense... We also, we, we really don't like to perform. That's, so, that's I mean, also, that would make us a horrible band, I guess. That's also true. <laughs> so in that sense, we often, I mean, uh, talking about different roles, then we often suddenly switch to a completely different model, uh, which is something we also came across years ago when we saw an interview uh, with a Dutch soccer player. And we actually hate soccer. We don't like soccer at all. Which is quite uh, uncommon for Dutch people, because everyone in the Netherlands really loves soccer, but... 
It, we never really got into it. It's, I don't know, but we never got into it. <laughs> but anyway, we once saw this interview by this Dutch soccer player, Johan Cruijff. He's a sort of legendary figure or something, really interesting figure. Uh, and he was talking about the system of total football, total football, which is a sort of uh, system that was de uh, developed in the Netherlands in the 70s, uh, in which... How I understood it, every player in the field uh, can take on each other's role. So the midfielder can take on the role of the attacker and the defender. And I don't know all the exact words, but they can just, you know, uh, shift roles very easily, almost like in sort of like a modular system. And that that this idea of total football is quite interesting because this arrived at a time that in the Netherlands a, a lot of Designers and architects in the 70s were also quite interested in this idea of the sort of total design. Of course, it's total design. A lot of architects were uh, referring to total architecture. And then suddenly there was also this idea of total soccer. So it, it was almost a sort of modernist, modular way of, of soccer playing. Uh, so that, that is also an interesting model for a studio idea that you don't have defined roles, but that you can sort of switch roles in a, in a sort of fluid way. But we do have our own tables. Right? It, is, it is a sort of, again, a, a very much an ideal uh, model in the sense that when, when st the stress really kicks in and it's constantly kicking in, at, uh, 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 and you, you know, then sometimes you tend to fall into certain roles because but in, in general you try yeah you try to avoid it and you try we also we don't really I mean it's only the three of us we don't have any interns and uh, so we also don't really like the sort of hierarchical thing of junior designers senior designers and it's just us three basically and we do everything ourselves also stuff like the cleaning or the bookkeeping and that kind of stuff so in that sense uh, we, we try to yeah, we try to see it as a sort of uh, egalitarian, sort of non-higher, yeah, without any hierarchy. And it sounds like there's a there's this kind of theme of open-endedness, and um, that kind of goes through your, your the way that you work, your your process, and also into the work itself. And I'm thinking in particular about one of the pieces that you're very well known for. Your um, John and Paul and Ringo and George T-shirt. Could you talk a little about? Could you talk a little bit about this? Um, but I do want to talk about the fact that this has inspired so much um, customization and participation from the rest of the world, uh, designers and non-designers alike. Uh, for the listeners at home, <laughs> I have to point out your, your the very shirt that you're wearing is a <laughs> is it's, a, uh, a it's very golden girls. Rose and Blanche and Sophia and Dorothy. But that's not one of our versions, right? It's not one of our versions. Okay. <laughs> yes. No, we, we, uh, we made that shirt in 2001 for a uh, Japanese t-shirt label called 2K by Gingham. And basically what we were doing, we were making shirts for this t-shirt label and we were trying to make shirts that would somehow refer to its, to its own medium as shirts. Sounds really complicated, but we always try to make stuff that sort of refers to its own context, in a way. 
En uh, with that shirt, we were the, uh, the original John and Paul Ringo George shirt, we tried to make a sort of archetypical band t-shirt. So we thought, okay, what is the most iconic band and, and what is the most almost abstract way to represent that band on a shirt? Uh, and we, we, we came with this idea of uh, turning the Beatles into this list of four names and then put it on a shirt. The ampersand were just a sort of pure accident, not really accident, but uh, it's a formal decision. Yeah, because the, word, the name George was sticking out. It was sticking out really... Uh, For the people in the audience, there's actually somebody who's wearing it. Somebody you is wearing the, would you maybe... Somebody, somebody is wearing the original shirt in the audience. And as you can see, we put George underneath, which is for real Beatles fans almost, you know, blasphemy. blasphemy. <laughs> Because George is, in, in the mind of a lot of people, you know, enormously more important than, than Ringo is. But the reason why we put George underneath is that his name was sticking out. So we thought, okay, if we put George underneath and then put ampersands after each other word, uh, then all the names look more even. So it was a purely uh, formal decision to just create a more even block. And uh, we made that shirt, and immediately after we made it, we made two others. Uh, because we suddenly thought, yeah, but it's not really about the band. We just wanted to focus more about this method. So we made one shirt of the Rolling Stones, because we thought that's almost like the antithesis of the Beatles. So it makes sense to sort of uh, also make a shirt with the, with the Rolling Stones. And then uh, we also made a Ramon shirt. Because we also thought it made sense because the, uh, the, the Ramones all have the same last name. So we thought by erasing those last names, you also say something about the this, this sort of iconic uh, and now dimension of names in general. And, uh, so we made those two shirts in 2001, uh, these three shirts in 2001, and we noticed... Uh, it, it actually took a while, but at a certain moment, people started to send us all these pictures of people who made versions and variations and homage and parodies of it. During the lecture that we did uh, in, in, in Seattle, we, sh we showed a lot of those versions through the figure of Questrov, the, the drummer of the Roots, who... Uh, for some reason, uh, it uh, owns a lot of these. He makes them themselves, probably. But yeah, he owns, I think so, yeah. He owns a lot of these shirts. I mean, we've got dozens of pictures where he's wearing all these different variations. And uh, but that's the great thing about the shirt. And of course, also, I mean, your Golden Girls shirt is a great example. We're we're so glad that we sort of, in some weird way, while we were making quite a sort of strange, abstract sort of t-shirt for some kind of esoteric Japanese t-shirt label, but that it sort of took on and that people use it as a sort of template to exercise their own uh, fandom, you know, because it's, it's really about, that shirt is really about being a fan in a way, you know, people use it to, to sort of, uh, yeah, display their favorite bands or their, their, their favorite actors. And Well, I think it's interesting that um, your working process seems to be less about authorship and more about participation. And you create something that inspires people to participate, to make something their own from your design. Yeah, but it, there's also something paradoxical going on in a sense that, I mean, we could have never anticipated it in a sense that actually the way we design it, it's quite a sort of hermetic thing, you know? You, it's quite a sort of rounded uh, uh, concept. And, um, but it's often, I think, that the moment that you make something that 
is quite hermetic, that it invites people to actually do something with it. If you would make something open-ended, uh, uh, already in, with... Um, anticipate. Yeah, but if, if you anticipate it too much, then, you know, it's almost like that a closed door, you think, oh, I'm going to open this door and I'm, I'm see what is in there. But if you already have an open door and somebody winking you in, you say, oh, I'm going to keep out of that door or something. So sometimes you actually, I mean, there are always this, this sort of paradoxical yeah, things going that's on. A, yeah, that's a good thing because um, we, not, we always really try to think about only like the designed objects, never about the audience. It's never about who's going to walk into this thing that we make. We never actually think of, of that because how can you imagine this person or this uh, audience? I don't know. So we try to stay away. We just solely focus on what is best for the, for the object. And also the clients uh, have a lot, lot to suffer in that uh, sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, the word design object comes, a lot, uh, comes out a lot in, your, um, in, in this book. It's, it's, it's repeated quite a few times. It's on your website. Um, there's a quote about turning words into objects. And what exactly does that mean to you? Um, uh, this whole sense of materialism is important to us. It's a, it's a very strange word, materialism. It's often used, of course, to describe, uh, I don't know, people looking for wealth or something, you know, a materialistic mindset or something. And, but when we talk about materialism, that is not necessarily the materialism we talk about. It's really about this idea that, in the end, everything is sort of grounded in some, on some kind of material base. And in order to uh, change something, you first have to change the material, and then you can change others or yourself. Or So you always, everything that you do, uh, or everything that we do, we always try to grounded in a sense in this idea of the material dimension and I um, yeah the turning words into objects it's a it's I mean I think when we wrote that it has to do I mean at one point somebody asked us our definition of graphic design and we wrote the turning words into objects which was sort of inspired by a definition we once came across of concrete poetry from this Brazilian poet called Augusto de Campo. And he described concrete poetry as um, word objects in space-time. And we, we always like this idea of word and objects and the, the sort of combination of the two. And I th yeah, and in, in a way, language lives inside us and in turn, we want to live inside language. So we're turning our environment also into some kind of linguistic space. and. I've yet. I, also, the idea of an object is quite a sort of um, optimistic thing. I mean, in the sense that images are quite um, difficult to change in a way, you know? When you try to find images, you, you, you cannot really... But an object is something you can take, you can, you can tear, you can change. An, an, an object is more changeable, in effect, because you can see that it's ultimately made by humans, so it can also be changed by humans. Beyond This Point is created by Civilization, a design firm rooted in social change. The podcast is audio engineered by Dave West and produced by Eric Flood. Listen to more of our podcasts at beyondthispoint.design.